The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. Welcome, I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips, and on this show, we'll be looking closely at many life issues from a psychological perspective. <clears throat> to do this, I want to include you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and call in with questions and comments to today's show at one 472 5788 We are all aware in the media, as well as through personal contacts, of marriages that seem to have failed in the aftermath of tragic loss, combat stress, natural disaster, or trauma of some kind. It makes us wonder, can a a couple survive trauma? Can they hold on to their bond in face of unimaginable pain and loss? I'm going to personally answer this question for you by drawing upon my experience working with couples, my own experience, and the book I co-authored with Dr. Diane Kane, Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to Coping with Trauma and Post-Traumatic Stress. For many years, I had worked with individuals, couples, and groups in the aftermath of trauma. After 9-11, as part of the American Group Psychotherapy Association's outreach, I joined with Dr. Kane, and together we provided programs for hundreds of couples, both uniformed service as well as civilian couples. While in the midst of this, I faced my own traumatic event, the near-fatal car accident of my youngest son, who needed life-saving surgery and was in ICU for 40 days. Those days and months confirmed what I had witnessed with so many couples, that while a couple's relationship can often suffer the greatest blow in the aftermath of trauma, it can often become the greatest source of support, resilience, and recovery. Key to that is understanding trauma, making meaning of stress reactions, accepting personality and gender differences between partners, recognizing that people grieve in different ways at different times, regulating anger, reclaiming intimacy, and supporting and building both individual and couple resilience, often one step at a time and even one moment at a time. 
The book grew out of the need to pass this information forward, and that is what I'm going to do on today's show. The first question we ask is, what is the nature of trauma? Why does trauma impact couples? Well, traumatic events are unexpected and unimaginable. These are the moments in life nobody sees coming. They're frightening, they're life-threatening, and often overwhelming. They make us question ourselves, other people, even God. How did this happen? They make couples feel blameful about themselves or blameful about each other. What did I do wrong? How did you let this happen? Traumatic events impact relationships because they rob partners of their usual sense of safety, trust, their way of being. Whether a trauma has happened to one or both partners, the relationship often becomes shaken. When a partner is hurt, grieving, having nightmares, too angry to speak or too sad to hope, both couples struggle and suffer. There's a tremendous sense of helplessness watching your partner suffer. For a time, couples often seem to find that they can't find the we they once knew. Now, when we speak about dealing with this impact of trauma on couples, we're going to talk about stages of recovery. And I want to say up front that the stages of recovery, which are very important, and we get them from Judith Herman, they are, it's suggested that they unfold in a linear way. It's been my experience that that's not exactly how they unfold. You're going to see aspects of these stages, glimpses of them, at the acute stage when the trauma happens, as well as six months or four years later. Let's talk about them. The very first stage of recovering has to do with establishing safety physically and psychologically. And actually, that's where this show comes in and the book comes in. Of course, physically, one would make sure there was medical care, Make sure, in fact, that we reset body rhythms. We're going to be talking about how much hyperarousal, how much nightmares, sleep problems, etc. unfold after trauma. And so you, the idea, and I always ask people, are you sleeping? Are you eating? And what do you do every day for stress? And those were exactly the questions I asked myself, my husband, and our family when we faced the trauma. Now, psychologically, one of the things that Diane and I found, and I actually think both of us knew this from working with couples, is that when you make meaning of a situation to someone, you drop the anxiety considerably. And when we look at the typical symptoms in a little while of responding and in the the aftermath of trauma, they're going to start to make sense. And that alone makes people feel like, well, This is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So the first step would be establishing safety. The second is remembering and mourning. Let's talk about remembering. One of the paradoxical aspects about trauma is the need to remember and the inability to forget. Now, this is what that means. There is an urge to tell someone what happened. Someone has to bear witness to this unthinkable event On the other hand, most people don't walk away from a trauma with a narrative. The memory is not a narrative memory like a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Rather, when we face trauma, we are thrown into our fight-flight 
reaction. And so what we remember is what we've encoded under that state of survival. So the memory for trauma is more like sensory fragments. People will remember the sight of one thing. One person remembered a certain street name near the World Trade Center, sometimes a smell, a taste, a sound. The problem is that these often serve as triggers to memories that are associated with body terror. And that's why it's very difficult to speak about and actually give the story of your trauma at the very beginning because you hardly want to remember even though it's something you feel you need to do. When we talk about mourning, let me share this. Not all loss is traumatic, but all trauma involves loss. That is because trauma is unthinkable, unexpected, and impacts who we are, how we live, our marriage, our family, our lifestyle, our home, It takes something from us. And so the part of the healing has to do with mourning that loss, finding a place for it, finding a way to move on. The third step that Judith Herman gives us is reconnection. And I would say to you, after years of doing trauma work, that nobody heals from trauma alone. Connection is vital. It provides you with the safety, the place where you can tell your story. It helps in the hyperarousal. It reminds you of your resilience. What we say is that pain shared is pain divided, and that's what we so much want couples to know when they face the unthinkable. The other thing I think it's that's important to remember is that recovery is a process. Time alone doesn't heal, but I'll tell you that people heal in time, and sometimes it takes a while. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with you or your marriage. It just means sometimes healing takes time. The other thing I want to share is that recovery doesn't mean forgetting, and it doesn't mean not having strong feelings about an unthinkable event that you suffered. It means moving on in a way that this event doesn't become your whole identity. It means moving on with the wisdom of a survivor, and it means recapturing your entitlement to love, to laugh, and to hope. Let's look for a minute at the reactions to trauma, because if a couple can normalize these reactions, they already start to feel less frightened that they've not only lost their home or their livelihood or their child, but they're going to lose the bond between them. We find that whether it's combat stress, a cancer diagnosis, a car accident, or a sudden job loss... Traumatic events jolt us physically, neurochemically, and emotionally. It's common for people to respond with a certain number of stress reactions. They are the normal reactions to an abnormal event. The first one is hyperarousal. You almost don't calm down. It's almost as if your nervous system and your psyche remains in a persistent expectation expectation of danger. You have a very sensitive smoke detector, the slightest sound, the the slightest um, frightening event, anything that reminds you of it can trip that feeling of fight-flight. 
Often you can't sleep, you have trouble eating, and you have trouble relaxing. This is where it's very hard for people to often remember and access what they do on a daily basis to reduce stress. So it's very helpful when couples help each other with this. If you always did Sudoku, if you always walked the dog a number of times, if you love yoga, if you love mystery stories, if you love certain TV shows, you need them. They're going to help bring that hyperarousal down. I'll also say that we're wired to run in the face of danger. Exercise of any kind helps reduce that hyperarousal. The other symptom that's very normal but is very painful is intrusion and re-experiencing. This is what we call the indelible imprint of the traumatic moment. It doesn't last forever, but it can last for a significant amount of time, particularly if we don't find a way to embrace it and almost make sense of it. So you're going to see this kind of intrusion and re-experiencing in nightmares, flashbacks, different imaging. People often will say to me, oh my goodness, I'm having nightmares, and I say, that's not a bad thing. Let's try to understand them. I've even encouraged couples to share the nightmares with each other, all with the understanding that you are trying to find a space to make sense of something that didn't make sense when it happened. And the more you talk about it, now that you're post-trauma, and the more your left brain is able to symbolize it and, and put different kind of memories on it in the safety of your relationship, in the safety with friends, sometimes with groups, the more some of these intrusive memories and flashbacks are going to start to recede. Another very common symptom that fits is what we call constriction, numbing, and avoidance. Now, some people say this is the most tenacious symptom because long after there's a need or an urge to avoid anything that'll trigger the hyperarousal or that re-experiencing. The problem is that in, in avoiding triggers of trauma, people start to avoid living. We're going to talk about how couples can sort of misinterpret that with each other and how we're going to try to deal with it. We've also come to learn in, in the amount of trauma work that's done even in the last 15 years since 9-11 that we also, and especially with our combat vets, there's often also a negative alteration in thoughts and moods. And this we can also attribute very, very often to the fact that hyperarousal is often shows itself as anger. We have a tremendous correlation between PTSD and depression. So it's not unusual that you're going to see alterations in your partner's moods as well as in your own. Now, generally, right after a trauma, these symptoms will appear and remain for a week or so, maybe up to a month, but they usually start to subside. Sometimes, and this is what's confusing to couples, the reaction and some of these symptoms are actually delayed. Now, there, a number of years ago, and it's, a, it's just a tragedy, we, we keep suffering from these fires, and now we have them in Alberta, and we have folks suffering from um, loss of homes, evacuation, but we would often say, I was once out dealing with um, folks who had responded to the California fires, and the comment was, when the smoke clears and the press goes home, that's when people really need help, and that's when they often suffer alone. 
And I think that that's really applicable to couples. Very often, couples who pull together in a crisis, they'll manage the deployment. They work side by side after a storm. They're baffled when six months later, they're feeling tense, depressed. They are avoiding each other. They don't understand each other. There's a lot of anger. There's no intimacy. How could this be happening after? When it does happen in a delayed way, and it's not at all uncommon, very often partners don't associate it with the trauma. So they start to really believe that they're losing their connection and they're losing the bond that they always shared. Understanding these symptoms, as I'm saying, the normal response to an abnormal situation really starts to make them feel like they're okay. I want to give you some examples. In one case, and in all of these examples, they're based on real people, but they've been disguised or I've sort of put a compilation of a few couples together to protect confidentiality. In one case, and this happened after Hurricane Katrina, as the couple described this, They could barely get out of their front door. When they did, they were pulled under. She was caught on a branch, and he had to dive in to save her. They both were in a very life-threatening situation. But the dilemma was she was so hyper-aroused that what she did to get relief was share their literally near-death experience, the story and the details of it, anywhere they went. That was a problem for him because as soon as he heard it, he would get triggered with the intrusive memory and the body memory of almost dying or almost losing her. And she, when he would immediately walk out of the room, would assume he doesn't care about me. He doesn't want to remember what we suffered. None of that was true, but they didn't understand. And not until we made sense of her need to bear witness and have someone bear witness to the story and his need to avoid it for a time until he came to a steady state, those two needs were clashing. Once couples start to know that, they can start to problem solve as to how to handle it. In another situation, let's look at hyperarousal. Most people, I know we could relate to this um, in the aftermath of my son's trauma, which was With hyperarousal, there's a tremendous irritability. Nobody has patience for anyone. Um, Keys are lost. Traffic jams become reasons to carry on. A mail that's not put in a certain spot is a reason to fight. So if you're noticing that, consider that that's part of the hyperarousal that you've suffered. In terms of avoidance, in one case... The wife was watching reruns every night in in bed, and the reason for it was she was trying to avoid closing her eyes and seeing the accident scene. Now, he took this to mean she was uninterested in him, he took it as rejection, and he would become very annoyed, and then they would begin to fight. It wasn't until they made sense of her need to somehow avoid the rerun, that they could enter into some problem solving. They could start to watch the shows together. They could move it to another kind of show. Generally speaking, one of the things that happens once you start to be able to recognize that the behavior that you're clashing about is really fueled by some of these symptoms, a couple begins to 
problem solve together. It's them looking together at what's going on. One woman wanted to start socializing again. The husband did not want to go to anything they were invited to, but it wasn't until he talked to her about the fact that once people asked him about his son, who he had lost in Iraq, it was torture for him because he was thrown into that grieving mode. And one of those problems, of course, is that she didn't know that until he told her. Now, we're going to take a break at this point. You've been listening to Psych Up live on Casoza Radio. We're talking about couples coping with trauma. When we come back, we're going to talk about where does anger fit in and how do we reclaim sexual intimacy? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now Welcome back. back. To Psych Up Live. We talk about couples coping in the aftermath of a traumatic event. Now, we had been talking about making sense of the many symptoms, the constriction, the hyperarousal, the intrusion, the mood swings. And before we talk about anger, I just want to mention 
a technique called couple psychological first aid and what I think is the most important aspect of it. Just like any first aid, the whole idea of first aid, if we think about it, is to intervene immediately uh, in in a situation to minimize injury and reduce too, too many medical complications. Well, what we find with trauma work is that If, in fact, very soon after a traumatic event, we can intervene with a compassionate presence, um, a quick attempt to establish psychological and physical safety, if we can identify a person's needs and even invite them to remember their own survival and their resiliency, we often can abate a more dramatic reaction to the trauma. Now, I would say for couples, the most important one is a compassionate presence. And I even think it would help reduce some of the anger we see in the aftermath of trauma. Because we feel so helpless often, whether you both endured a trauma or one or one of the partners has just gotten a very frightening diagnosis or one of the partners has just been assaulted or faced something. We feel so helpless we don't know what to do. We often want to start to problem solve, but really we wish we had magic to make things okay. It's worth knowing that your compassionate presence, and I really mean sitting there, being with a person, has a tremendous impact on reducing hyperarousal and lowering the reaction to trauma. Just as we think and we understand that children who are with their parents in, in the face of bombing, as refugees, do best because they have that presence with them. The same is true of couples. Most people want to hear the voice of their partner on the phone. And even better, they want that person next to them. So I would say to you, when you feel you don't know what to do, but you just want to help your partner, be with them. Listen, contain hear their story, hear their complaints. Sometimes they just need to say it. Your compassionate presence is very powerful. Now, when we did the many, many groups we did with couples and even the private work I've done with couples after trauma, one of the most common questions people ask is, is anybody else angry? Because there is a very big connection between anger and trauma, and we're going to talk about that. Now, there are also some people who are angry, but they are not going to show it because they're afraid that actually it could destroy the relationship. And since they're feeling so vulnerable anyway, the last thing they want to do is lose one thing that they have left, which is their partner in their relationship. So people say to me, Can anger destroy a relationship? And I'd say the basic answer is no. You know, anger is a human feeling. It's not in itself damaging. In fact, and those of you who read my blogs have heard me write, you've read about this, and that is if it's not safe to be angry in a relationship, you're not in a safe relationship. There has to be a good attachment equates to the ability to protest and protest in a way that doesn't bring the consequences of abandonment anger or destruction. So for starters, we've got to know the relationship can handle the anger. But what I want you to know in terms of the aftermath of trauma is that very often the anger is really not coming from a real clash between the couples, but from what they're dealing with post-trauma. Anger is a very 
complex reaction to trauma. And when we look at what fuels it, you're going to see how much of trauma can fuel anger. For instance, let's consider that that hyperarousal that we said comes, it's part of our fight, flight, think of it, fight, flight, or numb, very often fight is what we continue to do as we're still hyperaroused in the aftermath of trauma. And so we have a very quick fuse for the kids, the noise, the mailman, the lines in the food store, what you cooked, what you didn't cook. So it's worth couples knowing, wait a minute, what what are we doing here? What's going on? Is this part of that hyperarousal? And this is where exercise, stress reduction is so important, whatever helps you with that. The next piece is consider how tied anger is to anxiety. And anxiety is a tremendous piece of what comes in the aftermath of often a near-death experience. Think about when you're driving your car. If somebody almost crashes, you are first frightened and alarmed, and then you might scream some expletives out the window. So very often, anger is a secondary reaction to terror, anxiety, Another one, is, is, and you know if you've had teenagers, this is true, that you get the call from the school, your son, your daughter's been suspended or hasn't been there. No one knows where he or she is. You know where he or she is because you figure they're at the, whatever. But you and your spouse are going to the school or headed to pick up your child, your teen. You know you're going to end up fighting. You're both so anxious about what's going on that you not only usually end up fighting, you end up being angry at the kid. Nothing good comes out of it, but it's very, very natural and very typical. So we have anger as part of your physical state, the hyperarousal, anger tied with anxiety. This is, the next one's very common and often missed. Anger often masks other feelings, grief, vulnerability, depression, We know in a 2005 report that men were more likely to express depression through fatigue, irritability, and anger. Women are more likely to show it with sadness and guilt. So sometimes, I saw this so much with uniformed service personnel, as one one, um, fireman said to me, if I don't stay angry, I'm going to start to cry and I'm never going to stop. So the use of anger as a mask, it's not only exhausting, it confuses everyone and keeps that person often quite isolated because nobody wants to get near that kind of anger. The other thing, and and the example is going to come from Valley Stone, she's a cop's wife who wrote the book Cops Don't Cry, is that anger often is an attempt to cover pity or shame. Now, one thing that I'll share with you is I have never known someone who has suffered trauma who doesn't experience some self-blame and some shame. It's as if we all expect in life we could and should control things and never let anything terrible happen to ourselves or anyone we love. That's impossible, but we still nonetheless often carry shame or blame. Well, Valley Stone said, you know, when her husband was emotionally upset and if he was physically injured, and this was verified, I will tell you, in working with cops and firemen as well as military, very often it was unacceptable to them. How can I be a cop and be anxious? How can I be a cop who's injured? Often the attempt by the partner to be empathic, to show that they care, is met with anger. You don't understand. You were never there. 
don't tell me. And one of our, one of the things that unfolds from that is that the spouse doesn't know where to position themselves. I've seen the the other part happen too. Sometimes a woman has experienced a medical um, ch- challenge, and her spouse truly adores her. She's still her to him, but she does not believe that. So when he compliments her, she says, "Don't compliment me. I know how I look. Don't don't buy me clothes like that. I don't want to wear them." So that very often, our anger is really masking the pain of pity, fear of pity, shame, or blame. Sometimes anger is a disguised communication. In one example, I'll give the, the, the example of Paul and Carol. So every night, Paul would begin complaining to Carol about money or projects around the house. It was really a way for him to avoid Carol's wish to talk about the miscarriage, losing the baby. Or even worse, the possibility that she would want to start trying again to have a sexual connection, to have another pregnancy, neither of which he thought he could handle. So he would every night start questioning her about contentious topics, and she would feel rejection. The result was fighting and distance between them. You know, so it's not until we decode sometimes some of the disguised communication that we get to know both the suffering, but neither couldn't quite read the other's message. Now... One of the things that also seems to be very true in the aftermath of trauma is an impact on a couple's intimacy. When we when we worked with um, couples, we um, we decided to call our chapter in the book um, "Dancing in the Dark: Reclaiming Intimacy." The idea being that you might have to learn new steps. You might have to be patient with each other. You might have to even risk stepping on each other's toes. But one of the most valuable things that could happen in the aftermath of trauma for a couple is using the intimate bond. And by intimate, I don't necessarily mean sexual activity immediately has to start. That's very often very difficult. But there are ways to refine and reclaim that sexual intimacy if couples aren't afraid of it and they aren't in too much pain to risk it. One of the things we know, and it's worth normalizing this, is that avoidance of sexual activity, finding sex boring or burdensome, reduced desire, performance difficulties are all associated with traumatic events. We've seen the research on it, so it's really pretty common. We see it associated with the grief from losing a child, as well as traumatic events like diagnosis of cancer, miscarriage, auto accidents, natural disasters. Very often, they impact the intimate relating and the sexual connection between a couple. Now, why? Well, for one thing, let's think about those symptoms again. The symptoms we spoke about were hyperarousal. You're so anxious, you're not sleeping well, you're not eating well, and you can't relax. You're having memories that you're trying to avoid, or you're trying to talk about it over and over again, and your partner's trying to avoid it. Or you feel so numb, you are trying to protect yourself by not feeling, and the last thing you want to do is feel anything. Every type of feeling, even sexual arousal, comes under the topic of I can't risk feeling. So 
it makes absolute sense that in the aftermath of traumas of all kinds, a couple's intimate connection is going to be in some way compromised. So what do we do? One of the most startling things to me working with couples who come in and have wonderful people who come in with so much pain is, first of all, realizing that trauma freezes us in time. So if a couple has just faced a miscarriage, one of many, let's say, they are very, very bereft and They may be on different sides. They're angry. They're irritable. But one of the things I know is that they're frozen in time. So it has always been delightful to see this and surprising, I think, to the couples that I ask them to reach back to the time before the trauma. I'll say, well, tell me where you met and what made you want to marry this guy? Or what was she wearing? What color was she wearing the first time you saw her? Or um, tell me a place that when you think about it, you suddenly feel very romantic thinking about him, etc. And I will tell you that, first of all, most women don't think men remember what they wear. Not true, they do. Um, And people get this delighted look, people who had come in not at all happy with each other. And I think it's because... Just as there are imprints of traumatic memories, there are state-dependent memories that are underscored with arousal, flirtation, happiness, delight, and those are the ones I want the person to reach for. Because if they can even start to access that connection that brought them together, even if it was 30 years ago or four years ago, we have something for them to use as a bridge back to who they are. Now, does it mean it's going to work magic? No. But much as we know with mindfulness now that moments matter and moments of choice matter, if a couple's able to use the memory of being in the green Honda, of being in Bermuda together, of seeing each other across campus as a way to remember that that was a positive connection that they own, they have a way of offsetting the tension, the fighting, and the fear that they can't quite find each other and they don't know how to proceed to find each other. Now, one of the things that is really crucial in regaining intimacy is letting each other know that you want to be more than just friends. That does not necessarily mean it's a wish to be together immediately in a sexual way. But what it means is that you still want each other. And that communication often doesn't happen. Very often, one partner, often it's the woman, does not want to show affection or communicate something that implies romance because she's afraid that her partner will act on it. The man very often does not want to make an overture because he's gotten no indication by affection or flirting or any kind of touching that she's interested. So they both may very much want to be more than friends, but nobody's communicating that. And so what I will say to couples is just letting each other know that is an invaluable gift because it means you're both working to the same goal. I've seen that mutually expressed desire can compete with geographical miles, physical limitations, medication side effects, and PTSD symptoms. 
The other thing that I would always say, and people have read material when I've written it down, is that no one shows up for a good intimate relationship. If you want it to change, you have to take small steps to make it happen. And that means you don't necessarily start by making love. You start by making time. Now, everyone has heard the therapists and the hokey characterization as date night. But it's really more than date night. It's the wish communicated to not take each other for granted and to do something that lets the other one know, I desire you, I love you, we are partners. Bringing the special cup of coffee, taping the show you saw together, making time to do things. In some ways, Copac and Comstack come up, came up with a way of saying that Couples need to realize they communicate more than one way, and if they did, it would help them. They communicate by doing things together. Inevitably, if they do things together, they're going to talk about what they're doing. And if they're doing things together and talking about what they're doing, there's a good chance they're going to eventually be intimate again. Now, I would invite you to think of how many movies we all know where the couple ends up on a deserted island. They have to somehow survive by building a shed, fighting the elements. You know, in the end, although they're fighting halfway through the movie, they end up as lovers and in each other's arms. That's what we want to try to do. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live with Dr. Suzanne Phillips. We're talking about couples coping in the aftermath of trauma. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. On our today's show, I'm the person talking about couples healing after trauma and coping with trauma's impact. I'm drawing upon my experience and the book that I co-authored with Dr. Diane Kane, Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to Coping with Trauma and Post-Traumatic Stress. Now, we're going to talk about resiliency in this section, but I want to mention two other pieces with respect to reconnecting and sexual intimacy that are worth just thinking about. The first is it is very, very common for people to believe that they're going to go back. When we get back to the way we were, then we'll be sexual intimate. You don't wait to go back because actually, and it's probably hard to believe this, you go forward because for as bad as trauma is, when a couple, when an individual has made it through trauma, they have a wisdom about them, a sensitivity to life, often a gratitude for life they may not have had before. So you want to move forward. I say to people, don't wait to have a feeling about being intimate. Act into the feeling and the feeling will come. Think about how many times you or your partner have, you were supposed to go somewhere, to a party, to a gathering, to a brunch, and one or the other said, I don't, I don't want to go. I, I, I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to go. And you finally went because he or, or she were urging you, they were urging you to go. And you actually had a good time. So it's something we even ask our children to do. Try it. You might like it. So I would say risk holding hands, risk the kiss, risk the intimacy, risk the affection. And in some way, you'll start to have the feeling again. The other thing that we we used to talk more about in the 50s is don't overlook the power of pillow talk. I see it as a real step toward intimacy. And it fits right in with the mindfulness we talk about so much today. Because it really means being present to each other in a moment and not letting the world come in. That's a big thing in terms of, I'm going to say, couple resilience as well as their intimacy. Decide who you're letting in and who you're letting out. And there has to be some part of each day where you let no one else in. Now, you know, in the movies, the couple are resting and it's 10 o'clock at night and it's easy and they're going to go to sleep and they're sharing. Well, that's not so common in everyday life. But And so it might happen somewhere else in the kitchen when no one else is quite in there or while he's putting going through the mail when they come home or she's folding laundry. Find the pillow talk time because that's a way back. Now, the definition of resilience is the capacity to find a way back to successful adaptation and functioning even after a period of disorganization and disruption. That being said... As I said before, it's really not going back. It's going ahead with strength, and it's going ahead with hope. Now, one of the wonderful things couples can do for each other is they can serve as a resilient team, and they can remind each other of 
the resilience they might have put down as a result of the impact of the trauma. And that is, it's really, really valuable to remember what did your couple do to relax? What did your couple love? Did this person play the piano? Did this couple draw? Did this partner draw? What did you use as a couple as stress reduction? Now, I think we've seen some of the films about couples, ordinary people down the rabbit's hole where a couple's lost a child. And sometimes one is saying, well, can't we go on? And the other feels it's unforgivable. They never want to forget their child. And one of the things that it's worth considering is how we carry anyone we lose with us. But if we stand still, we don't move for them and we don't live well for them. And so it really becomes important for couples to continue to do what they did that they loved and that built on their resilience. Another piece of this is instead of criticizing each other for being different, capitalize on the differences. If you really are the person who's better with numbers and after the trauma, she can't do any of her numbers. She was doing some of them. So maybe you take over that for a while. Or maybe the person who was the number person is now completely scattered and you pick it up as something you do. I've seen couples switch places in terms of the roles they play post-deployment, post-trauma. And that's a really good way to build on resiliency. Very often, it's worth a couple recognizing that they are not going to choose the same things for resilience. One of the couples may be quite spiritual, and for them, that's an answer, but it's not an answer for the other person. It's worth respecting each other's resiliency and stress reduction, um, you know, stress reduction options. If someone's watch, binge watching a TV show and you are thinking, how can he take this? You're hearing me talk now. You have to remember that that works differently for that person than it may work for you. So I'm saying use each other's strengths, capitalize on the differences, and instead of fighting your couple's reaction to you, be curious about the impact of your reaction on your couple. Now, the other thing that I think couples sometimes need to be reminded is that there should be still a me, three, three, three things to worry about, me, you, and us, so that if you give up everything that you personally need independent of anyone else, you don't do your couple a favor, your, your partner a favor, because that made you strong. It can't become one big me, we, as a, as a way to recover. There still has to be the things she loved, the things you loved, as we have to still make those things possible, because that's a piece of the resilience of going forward. You may have come to, to, to find different things you do together as a result of a traumatic event, and that's a wonderful thing. But respecting and letting your partner know what you still need is a gift to them as well as a gift to you, because your hyperarousal, your mood, your calm state versus your irritability, your anger, or your despair is very, very significant in their life. Now, a military woman once said to me, do we get over it as when it comes to trauma, or do we just get on with it? And I have said to groups that I've worked with, 
I think we do both, and we do both at the same time. That is, in order to get over it in some ways, that is to be able to go on with life, you have to get on with it. You really do have to often go back to work. You have to meet again with friends. You have to dare to put up Christmas lights. You have to be there for other children or family members. And in so doing, in getting on with it, I think in small steps, you find a way to get over it. So I think, just as I've said, I think all of the steps to recovery happen, not in a linear way, but often at different times in different ways. I think getting over it and getting on with it works in a similar vein. The other thing I always want people to know is resiliency is not the absence of tears, anxiety, despair, or PTSD symptoms. It doesn't mean because you're suffering that you are not walking forward. I say to people this path post-trauma involves walking and looking in two directions. You're looking at times at the trauma and remembering it, or you'll never get over it, and then you're looking away from it. You are avoiding it. You're looking at things that distract you from it. You're going on with the rest of your life. And you go back and forth, and soon the oscillation becomes smaller, and you have found a place for an unthinkable chapter in your life. The other thing that I think is important to know is that resiliency is not diluted by needing help or and asking for help from your partner. It's important to know that being mindful in a moment, moments matter. I was doing one group with folks who had lost a loved one to suicide, and one woman raised her hand and said, it's not moment by moment. For me, it's millisecond by millisecond. And I'm passing that on because I do think it happens in small steps, in tiny steps, but it does keep happening. One thing I will say, and here's where being able to be mindful of the negativity and worry is that worry depletes resiliency. An antidote to that is gratitude. Gratitude expands resiliency. As well as taking stock of what you've been through and the wisdom of the survivor, passing it forward, I think I've never seen more resiliency than in groups of survivors where they are helping each other. And I think that that can be true of couples also. The goal, remember, is not to be happy but to have reasons to be happy in life despite the events we never plan that we have to deal with. Having hope and supporting each other as a couple that has faced trauma is shared resilience. It's what you really model for your children, and it's what really sometimes gives you the strength to go on. If you're human, you'll react to trauma. When you're standing next to someone who understands this and who loves you, it feels a lot safer. I want to thank everyone for listening today, and I want to give you some information. Our book, Healing Together, A Couple's Guide for Coping with Trauma and Post-Traumatic Stress, can be purchased through Amazon, as well as through New Harbinger Press. My website, where you there's a great deal of material, is www.couplesaftertrauma.com. Diane Kane's website is www.drdianekane.com. I also, you can access my blogs. There's over 300. 
Just Google Healing Together for Couples, Psych Central Blogs. And my Twitter is Healing the Number Four Couples. Again, I want to thank you for listening. You'll be able to hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site by this evening, my website on the podcast app of iPhone and iTunes under Psych Up Live, as well as on the Voice America app. Next week, we have a very important show. Wesley C. Davidson and Dr. Jonathan Topkiss will be discussing their newly released book, When Your Child is Gay, What You Need to Know. Joining them will be Dr. Shawnee Duberson, an Emmy Award winner and the founder of Project Forgive. She's one of the parents who was interviewed for that book, and she'll share her own journey of five years with her son's coming out. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show that I did today. Please drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.